Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn how to tap into your creative brain to reach your full potential. My first guest is Mike Long. Let's get to it. He's trained as a physicist and is an award-winning speechwriter, screenwriter, and playwriter. Playwriter. Playwright. <laughs> Either way. <laughs> A popular speaker and educator, Mr. Long, has addressed audiences around the world, including in a keynote at Oxford University. He teaches writing at Georgetown University, where he is a former director of writing. Mr. Long pursued undergraduate studies at Murray State University and graduate studies at Vanderbilt University. He's also the co-author of The Molecule of More, How a Single Molecule in Your Brain Drives Love, sex and creativity and will determine the fate of the human race. He's a friend of the show and I am so happy he's back again to hang out with me and talk about creativity. All and right. I, and I have to thank my mom for writing that introduction, huh? Yeah. How about that? Yeah. Thank you, mama. <laughs> <laughs> She's creative. No. She got everything in there. That's good. Thanks, mom. Oh. So, you know, we're talking about creativity and creative people tend to have high levels of dopamine and you are rapidly turning into one of the dopamine gods along with Dan Lieberman. <laughs> we're happy to be the dopamine, the dopamine gods. We've been going with dopamine guys, but gods I like better. That's I do good. too. Yeah. So what is it? What is it, uh, the relationship between creativity and dopamine? All right. Well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great big area. And let me start this way. Dopamine is a chemical in your brain that's called a neurotransmitter. And that's just a shorthand way of saying chemical in your brain, okay? It has certain things that it does, for our purposes, related to mood and emotion and, and motivation. And, and what dopamine does is it gives you the desire for more things, more experiences, more stuff. Now, all those other chemicals that are in your brain, those help you deal with the things that you experience right now, you know, how things taste or smell or how you feel about somebody. But dopamine makes you want more of something. Now you think, why in the world would I need a chemical like that in my brain? Well, evolution or God or a combination, whatever your, your beliefs are, 
realized that we needed to be urged on to get the things we need to survive. If you think about what you need to live, you need food and shelter and you need uh, to propagate the species. And all those things require you to put some effort into it, to go get it beyond what you have in front of you. And so this chemical urges you on to find more than you have, to find something new. Now, how does that lead to creativity? Well, what it means is people who have high dopamine are led to find more more, if you will. And that is one way to think about creativity. It is acquiring more things than, say, the typical person has in your mind, more ideas, more concepts, more connections. And with this larger universe of things to choose from, you can be more creative. If all I have in front of me is a, an egg and a watch and an ink pen, I can only make so many things with that. But if I'm dopaminergic, I probably have far more things like that in front of me. And this is in terms of the realm of ideas, I have many more connections I can possibly make. That's a poorly constructed quick reply, but that's where we begin. It's about more. It's about connection. Well, we are driven by more, right? And it's dopaminergic. I need to get the vocabulary word down so it rolls like it rolls off of your tongue. Um, but the idea of more, and, and when we're creative and we're making those connections, we are getting that hit of euphoria when we are solving the problem, whatever that problem is, whether it's artistic or mental. That is right. This dopaminergic urge, let's make that real. When you pick up your cell phone, it's buzzing, you pick it up, oh, there's a name of somebody you haven't seen in months or years, or it's somebody that used to be a, a boyfriend or girlfriend, or, or it's from an old college friend. You get that feeling, oh, boom, that's a good little buzz of a feeling because, you know, this might be good news. Or when you're walking down the street, the streets you walk down every day to go to work, and suddenly there's a new restaurant going in, you get that little buzz, that urge. This could be the restaurant I've, I've wanted. You're in a bar, you see somebody cute across the room, boom, you get that little urge. It's something new that has good possibilities attached to it. People who have dopaminergic, uh, are highly dopaminergic brains, more dopamine than other people, feel this feeling more intensely and more often than other people. Why? Because that dopamine softens them to whatever is new. They're looking for all sorts of uh, new opportunities, and so they tend to sense more opportunity than other people do and acquire more of this uh, urge. So let's talk about a creative brain and the likelihood or increased chance that there may be some mental health challenges. And I know that's really going out there on a limb, but listen up because I think you've got the answer. Sure. Well, when you're a creative person, what we can say is that creativity is the making of connections that other people don't see. If you think about uh, a beautiful work of art that you like, one of the things you may like is, is that they use brush strokes that other people haven't used before. Or you think of music that you like, and it tends to be surprising. It's a melody you hadn't thought of before, or a chord progression you haven't thought of before. You look at a car, you say, what is it that I like about that car? Oh, it doesn't look like any car I've seen before. It combines elements from other cars I've seen, but I've never seen them put together this way before. 
before. Well, that's what dopamine allows you to do. It gets all those possibilities in your brain, and then you make connections other people wouldn't see. Now, that's a good thing. Now, let's talk about mental illness. Mental illness is by one stretch or one kind of mental illness is by one measure, the inability to stop making those connections. You know, you think about Bob Dylan's subterranean homesick blues. Mom is in the Johnny's in the basement mixing up the medicine. I'm on the pavement. Think about the government. All these things thrown together. In fact, if you've seen the video for that that he made back in the 60s, you see him throwing these cards off with the words written on them and a rabbi, of all people, standing in the, <laughs> in the background. All these things that don't connect to you, you see it, and it's a beautiful work of art. Now, if you try to offer it as art and it finds it has a meaning, that's that's wonderful. But imagine talking to someone who has schizophrenia. What they have is the same kind of dopaminergic advantage taken to a negative extreme. Yeah. So not only do they make connections that other people don't make, they can't stop. So if you're Bob Dylan putting that to guitar music, that's lovely. But if you have schizophrenia, it might be mommy, basement, walk around the park. Oh, snowfall, snowman, a trip to icy fingers, and that's a beautiful thing. They, they just flow. Yeah. It's word salad. They, they, so in this way, creativity and mental illness really are connected. Or I'm going to use madness because I don't want to be quite so clinical. Creativity and madness are, are, are have something in common, uh, so much so that a creative brain is more like a mentally ill brain than it is a normal brain. It's the ability to make connections and stop just before it turns awful. Well, you know, it's funny you talk about it in that way. I call them the seeds drop because, <laughs> you know, like because uh, I have a bit of a I'm functional madness. Right. So, you know, I, I, I do all the things that society tells me that I'm supposed to. But, you know, I like to go out there with the creativity. So my family calls me the squirrel. And, you know, <laughs> the squirrel, the squirrel, the squirrel, the squirrel is active. And so I'll get this idea and I'm like, oh, that seed just dropped. And they go, oh, my God, <laughs> like fasten your seatbelts. And I never thought about it. You know, the correlation between mental illness and I have in the past, as, as you know, and we talk about on the show, I have battled with depression and believe that I have won. But therein lies the relationship. Well, it is true. And I hasten to add that this is not a romantic thing one should hope for. No. <laughs> uh, this, this, and you know firsthand, and I, I know firsthand from my own experiences with, with anxiety and, and panic. You don't want to hope for this, nor do you have to believe that mental illness is required for creativity. That's like saying you have to have a car that goes 1,000 miles an hour in order to go 100 miles an hour. You don't. You just need a car that goes 100 miles an hour. You, you need extra dopamine to have this advantage, and too much dopamine out of control it can lead to a kind of madness that is not pleasant and certainly not useful. In fact, highly creative people who have struggled with mental illness often say that they are uh, more creative when their mental illness is in check rather than when it's not. Mm, I have heard that before from clients, but I would argue that when one is in balance, that the creativity is the most productive. That's a good way to put it. I agree. Yeah. I want to talk about people who have low dopamine levels. We don't really talk about that. People who they're procrastinators or they're not easily motivated or they feel overwhelmed easily. How do we help them? 
Well, first, let's talk about the difference between dopamine and all those other chemicals. Dopamine is the thing that drives us to more, that urges us on, that gives us the ability to think in the abstract. All those other chemicals, which we call in our book, uh, the molecule of more, now on sale at Amazon. Uh, go buy it, <laughs> with, go buy it. Go buy it, buy it anywhere <laughs> books are sold. Those other chemicals, we're going to call the here and nows, and they have to do with uh, how, we, how we deal with whatever's around us immediately, feeling and emotion, things like that. People who don't have high dopamine are not condemned to not being creative. It just means that they're creative in different ways. They may be more focused on the here and now and that they would rather have the things that are in front of them and protect those things that are in front of them. And that's fine. It could be that you're more comfortable spending an evening in than going out snowmobiling or finding a new a new dance club or something. And, that, and that's perfectly fine. It just does require you, though, to maybe make a little more effort than a more highly dopaminergic person might make in order to bring those things into your life. If you're going to be creative, you have to have a plethora of new ideas in your head at any given time. Uh, one of the things that I, I teach when I teach speech writing is I tell my students, if you're a speech writer, your job is to explain things to other people in an interesting way. And if you're going to be interesting to other people, you better be interesting to yourself. So you better go out and take <laughs> and take the opportunity to acquire new skills, new knowledges, new experiences. It doesn't take a highly dopaminergic brain to do that. It just takes a highly dopaminergic brain to be automatically motivated to do that. That is beautifully said because there are many of us out there that would like to do more, would w want to write that book or want to learn how to paint or want to skydive or, you know, really in our minds would like to be able to do that and that we feel blocked or overwhelmed. Absolutely. And it is a choice. And, and again, don't think of it as a handicap. People who are highly dopaminergic have their own handicaps, so to speak. You mentioned uh, procrastination. That's actually more of a dopaminergic problem. People put off procrastination because it requires considered or, or, or consistent ongoing thought. And many highly dopaminergic people want to just jump from thing to thing. So they can be the worst procrastinators of all. Well, the procrastination, I mean, a true procrastinator, that juices them up, right? So when they're going down to the wire, when they've got a deadline and they got to click in at midnight, you know, before the due date at 8 a.m., they're high. They're flying. There you go. <laughs> there you go. But, you know, for there are more average folks out there that, you know, have these lifeless that they just have a hard time, you know, getting started. And the best advice for them is to choose. I will do this or that. And then the problem becomes, well, how, okay, smart guy, how do I motivate myself to follow up on my choice? One of the things you can do, and I, we may have talked about this when, when we've spoken previously, is to schedule these things, to say, if I'm going to write a book, and right now, tonight, in fact, is, as we record, this is the last uh, night of, of uh, the creative writing course that I'm teaching at Georgetown. And one of the things that I tell the students from the very beginning is I say, if you don't think you can motivate yourself to do this for the sheer delight of trying to write something, say every day I'm going to get up at whatever time I get up, I'm going to get up 20 minutes earlier and I'm just going to write for that period of time. That way it's part of the day and it's not something you have to wait for motivation for. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, the other thing I, I, I use over here sometimes is that Pomodoro technique, you know, the 20 minute timer, how much can you accomplish in that, yeah. that 20 minutes? And it works. Oh, I, I, I recommend that as well. Set the timer, turn off everything else and just do it. Yeah, just do it. It's think less about your thinking. 
<laughs> well put. You and I are poets today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, we're on fire. We're going to take a break. <laughs> All right. So we're going to take that break. To learn more, please visit MoleculeOfMore.com on Twitter at MoleculeOfMore and on Facebook. Guess what? Molecule of More. And, you know, what's that hashtag? You know it. Molecule of More. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. Hey, listen up, y'all. Before we take the break, I want to take a moment to appreciate today's sponsor, Audible. Time is a precious commodity, and taking the time to listen more is an absolute gift. Listening to audiobooks inspires us, motivates us, helps us to learn and grow, and can even bring us closer to each other. And there's no better place to listen than Audible. Right now, I'm listening to recent show guest Aaron Dignan's Brave New Work, a book about collective intelligence and revolutionizing the way companies work. I enjoy listening while I cook, work out, and even fold the laundry. Audible has the largest and most diverse selection of audiobooks on the planet. And now, Audible members get more benefits than ever before. Each month, they get three titles of their choice, one audiobook, two Audible Originals, fitness programs, and exclusive sales that they can't get anywhere else. Members can download and access their selection on a variety of digital devices to listen and enjoy on demand and on the go. There's never been a better time to experience Audible. Try it yourself free for 30 days by visiting audible.com slash hh or text the code hh to 500-500 and listen for a change. Once again, you get to enjoy a complimentary 30-day trial at audible.com slash hh or text that code hh to 500-500 and listen. Let's head to the break. We'll be right back. That's a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this episode. Why? Because we're talking about tapping into your creative brain to reach your full potential. We're returning to the conversation with my guest, Mike Long. All right, back to it. Let's talk about creative people and why they love mankind but really hate people. <laughs> Isn't that something? Yes. Uh, you know, the first, the first thing to mention is that you don't have to dig too deep to find uh, famous humanitarians and philanthropists who say something like, I really do love and care for mankind, but it's people I can't stand. Einstein himself said that quote, I love humanity, but I hate humans. Edna St. Vincent Millay, I love humanity, but I hate people. Charles Schultz, who drew peanuts, he had Linus once say this, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. We can go on and on like this all morning. What is it? Well, the answer is actually kind of obvious once you think about what creative people have and what that source 
causes. First, what do creative people have? They tend to have high dopamine. Now, what does high dopamine give us? Well, obviously creativity, that's axiomatic, but high, high dopamine gives us, as we say, the ability to, or the desire for more things. It also gives us a greater ability to manipulate things in the abstract. We are most comfortable, if we're highly dopaminergic, dealing with thoughts and concepts and not reality. Uh, the uh, history mm -hmm. tells us that Socrates would sometimes freeze in place for hours, even days at a time, lost in his own thoughts. Now, whether that was true to that extent, we can't know, but it certainly seems reasonable to think that he may have just stopped, shut off the world, and thought about what it is that, that he had going. Now, how does that lead to being a jerk? Well, it's pretty easy. If you are more comfortable with the abstract, less comfortable with reality, where do humans live? <laughs> they yeah. live they live in reality. And what is solving problems for humankind? That's an exercise in the abstract. If you come up with uh, the vaccine that cures a disease, you spend a lot of time just thinking, just working through the problem. And when it comes time to actually wiping off that arm, uh, getting that squalling kid to be quiet long enough to take the injection, that's a different problem. So you can see how uh, when they say, I love humanity, but I hate humans, what they really hate is the experience of actually doing something with their arms and legs. The day-to-day. Exactly. The, mon the, the mundane. Exactly. I, I get it. And it really balances, I think, what many of us are after. So the ability to be dopaminergic in a non-addicted way, right? So we, yes. we can learn to calibrate it and get the juice when and where we need it and do it constructively, right? Isn't that kind of the bright idea here? <laughs> yeah, it is. We're not because we're not slaves to dopamine just because you, this is not an excuse. No one should should cleave to this as an excuse to say, well, I, I can be a jerk because I'm highly creative and highly dopaminergic. No, it just means you have to work a little harder. It's like if you're not good at riding a bicycle, you have to spend a little more time learning. If you're not good with people, you can be good with people, but you, you have to think about it a little harder. You have to plan for it just as people who are not highly dopaminergic can be creative. They have to work a little harder. So don't use it as an excuse. Oh, I'm a genius. I get to be a jerk. No, you don't get to be a jerk. And if you are a jerk, you probably won't find an outlet for your genius. So lighten up. Well, you have an example of why everything you know is wrong in that scientists make great artists and artists make great scientists. It's true. And from what we've just said, I, I hope it's clear why that's true. If you are good with abstract concepts, you're good at science. If you're good at abstract concepts, you're good at art. Of course they would be uh, similar. We find, in fact, let me see, I think, let me, let me see if I can pull this up as we're talking. Yeah, the, the percentage of scientists among the, um, of artists among the Royal uh, Academy in Europe is higher than the percentage of uh, artists among uh, any other typical population. You'd think it would be the opposite, wouldn't you? But yeah. no. Because people who, who say, oh, I, I'm, I'm very good with words, but I'm, I'm very bad with numbers. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. If you're really good with words, you're manipulating abstract concepts that aren't even quantified. So to actually have them quantified for you in the form of numbers is going to make it even simpler for you to be good with that. You know, I'll, I'll tell you another quick little example. When the – you remember the year 2000 problem? Yes, I do. You mean the yes. non-problem problem? 
The, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, one of the things that, that was going on was that because in, earlier in my life, I, I wrote computer code uh, before I became a, a writer. And one of the things that we had to deal with was the end of the 1980s going into the 90s. And we had just set aside in our file systems one digit for the year. So we actually knew when it got to nine, it was going to go to zero instead of the next highest number. And that has ramifications for how you manipulate information. Uh, and so we dealt with the year 2000 problem in 1990, and then the rest of the world dealt with it then. And as this problem came up and programmers were needed, more and more programmers were needed, some places began to look to musicians to say, look, six weeks, we'll teach you how to code. You can make a little extra money. Because it turns out musicians are mathematical yes. and can pick this up very quickly. So, in fact, this is a natural consequence of being able to think this way, and it has practical applications. I want to ask you, uh, this is kind of a, the off-topic, but on-topic, off-topic, and that is about our dreams. Yes, our dreams. Yeah. Dreams are the place where we shut down all the here and now chemicals, and dopamine gets to run free. That's why the dreams that you have are so often filled with bizarre connections. Uh, there's no governor on it anymore. It's just dopamine taking whatever's lying around on your brain in your brain, and that's all it can take, by the way, whatever's lying around in your brain, and making it metaphorical or connecting it in new ways. And so you see connections in dreams that you would not see while you're awake. That can be a, a very useful thing to work out personal problems, to work out professional issues, or to to find creative ideas. For instance, Billy Joel's River of Dreams song came from a dream. Keith Richards heard the riff for satisfaction in a dream. Paul McCartney dreamed yesterday. This goes on and on like this. Some of the lyrics in uh, It's the End of the World by R.E.M. That came word for word from a dream because these connections get made. One other thing to note about how powerful this is and how scary if you think about it too long is that if you write down the description of your dreams, and then you ask a schizophrenic to write down the description of his daily life. <laughs> Take away the names. There's no difference, Lisa. There's no difference. I knew where you were going with that. That's why I, <laughs> I, I couldn't control my laughter. <laughs> so dreams can be very powerful. If you wake up and write them down, you'll forget them very quickly. Uh, you might get uh, some insight about a problem that you have going, or, or uh, you might get a creative idea that, uh, that you can use. And when we pay attention to our dreams, I mean, I have gotten uh, incredible uh, creative projects out of my dream, but that's no surprise, right? For the for the seed dropper over here, like I'll have a little vignette that comes in a dream. I'm like, okay, well, maybe I can make this work in my day life, and I, and I love to go out and try. And you know, I'm probably painting myself as some mad queen over here, but I'm not. You know, it's it is that creativity in action which brings me to my happy place, that dopaminergic <laughs> urgent place that you talk about. There you have it. For me, it's it's the shower. Uh, uh, and and there's a reason for that, actually. It's because that constant hot water on your back, it's a quiet place. There's a constant physical pressure, and that lifts you out of the here and now for a little while. I've, I've gotten significant work done uh, in terms of thinking through things in the shower. In fact, we're, we're, we're actually swapping out the shower, putting in a new thing. And I'm a little afraid the new shower won't be as good as the old one. So cross your fingers for oh. me on that, that I don't lose the magic, the magic place. That you don't lose your flow. That when you, it, <laughs> when, yes. you when you renovate your flow, that your flow stays. Yes, I, I hope it. I hope it works just as well in the new shower. But it's and and I say this uh, laughing. But if I could not 
have that experience, I would, there are a lot of things. The last, the last play I wrote was something that I came up with in the shower, just came up with it. And it, it was very successful, but I would not have come up with it anywhere else. Well, it's that unleashing of creativity is what we're really talking about. And we all have it. And I think that for those of us who believe that we are creatively challenged, what you're saying is that's not true. It's in, it's in there somewhere. It just means you have to work at it, not necessarily harder, but just in a different way. If you want to be creative, you can be. Begin to surround yourself with new things, new experiences, even a small step. Like instead of working in my office today, I'll go work in a new environment. I'll type in the park, someplace where you're surrounded by things that are unfamiliar or fresh. Those are the things that trigger off some more dopamine firing. And that brings me to kindling creativity. You know, you talk about it being in the shower or in dreamland or stepping away from that routine as you're describing. And in fact, giving the mind rest oftentimes ignites creativity. That is true. In particular, what you might do to uh, to trigger your creativity is to uh, put yourself in in two places which uh, sound very different, but in fact have, have a similar effect. One is to put yourself in a place where there is very little physical stimulation, a quiet room, a relatively dark room. Once you've turned down the here and now chemicals, and I mean that quite literally, once you've turned down the here and now chemicals, you give dopamine a little more urge to move forward. Another thing to do is to put yourself in just the opposite situation, a place where there are many new stimuli, things as simple as, as I said earlier, uh, an unfamiliar workspace or a, a place that's very busy, uh, go to a different city. Some people like to check into a hotel and write because they're in a different place. By stimulating dopamine with new, unfamiliar uh, 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 images, experiences, ideas, objects, you trigger that euphoria that uh, that and I'm using that in a more clinical sense but you trigger that that euphoric urge to continue to find new things and explore them and and uh, find out what they can be uh, what they can do for you so either end of the spectrum is quite useful just don't do what you're already doing yeah shake it up a bit and yeah. euphoria there is nothing wrong with euphoria we are pleasure seeking missiles us human beings right Oh, we're hooked on it. Why yeah, do you think that yeah. that phone's in front of your face all day long? <laughs> the notion, the notion is there might be something good coming just in a second. The phone is the slot machine you carry with you every day. Ooh, I love that. And that is the right note to end on to learn more about the molecule of more. The book, once again, is the molecule of more, how a single molecule in your brain drives love, sex, and creativity, and will determine the fate of the human race. To jumpstart your own creativity, head on over to moleculeofmore.com, on Twitter at Molecule of More, on Facebook, Molecule of More, 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 and hashtag <laughs> Molecule <laughs> of More. And I want to thank my guest and my new like hangout buddy. Yeah, Michael. my new friend. Yeah, yes. Michael Elong. And his co-author on the book, Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman, who is not here in the house today. But Mike Long, you come back anytime. We have so much to talk about. I see a beautiful friendship ahead. Me too. All right. We're going to take that break. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness. And follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. 
Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, we are continuing our conversation about tapping into the creative mind to unleash our full potential. My next guest is Sam Bennett, and she's going to help us start right where we are at. All righty. One of the topics that we talk about a lot on the show, off the show, in our lives, with our friends and at our jobs is being overwhelmed, procrastinating, being frustrated, not getting to those places that we dream of. And my next guest has written a book that is addressing just that, how little changes can make a big difference for overwhelmed procrastinators, frustrated overachievers, and recovering perfectionists. The book is Start Right Where You Are by Sam Bennett, who is also the author of Get It Done. Welcome, Sam. Thank you so much. Hi, everybody. Ah, it's a it's a pleasure to have you here, bright and early in the morning. So we've got the little frogs in our throats that we'll we'll just clear out by our chat. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, talk a little bit about the Organized Artist Company because that's where you hail from. You created this company to help creatives get unstuck and achieve their goals. Talk a little bit about the company and how you started writing books. Yeah, I started the company kind of inadvertently, like like most of my career in life. It sort of happened kind of sideways. You know, my my background's in theater. I'm an actor. I've always been an actor. I you know did plays as a kid. I went to theater camp. I grew up and did a lot of work in theater and television. And, and along the way, I just got really interested in this question of how do creative people make decisions? You know, how do you manage your career when you could do anything? <laughs> and how do you stay motivated on your creative projects? You know, when there's no quarterly review on how your novel is going, how do you stay engaged? How do you keep it important to yourself? You know, and of course, there isn't a the answer. There isn't a the way. There's just your way. So finding ways to help creative people lean into their own natural creative rhythms, to lean into their own wackadoodle way of looking at the world, and then eventually working with entrepreneurs as well, because same, exact same process. So that's what I spend my days doing, which is just super crazy fun. And, and it all came out of this workshop I created called the Get It Done Workshop, which is sort of like project management for creative people. Like, you know, how do you pick between your 137 great ideas? How do you budget? How do you schedule in a way that feels fun and not boring? And so I wrote the book of that, which was great and has done very well. But then I realized that I was leaving something out. So Start Right Where You Are is in some ways a prequel to get it done because, you know, I can give you all the tips and strategies in the world, but if, if it's not okay with you on the inside that you get your creative work out there, or if you're so stressed out and overwhelmed, you can't even think about getting your creative work out there then nothing I say is going to make any difference. So start right where you are is much more about the inner game kind of of leading a creatively fulfilled life. You know, and I think you said something really, really important when you started to respond. And that is about, you know, the, the leaning in, the trusting intuition. And this is an area where a lot of us, I believe, get stuck because we tend to second guess our intuition. We start doubting and lacking and trusting you know, that inner voice, because it has perhaps guided us incorrectly in the past. But yet it is one of the places that I think really ignites the the true north, if we pay attention. Absolutely. And the fact that I think it's interesting that, that, that it is a really quiet voice, you know, that little, little tugging on your sleeve, you know, that little idea that kind of won't leave you alone. And it's easy to ignore because it's a, it is kind of a small voice. 
But I think it's only small compared to the other voices in our head. You know, we've got the regular voice in our head that says, you're not good enough. No one's going to care. Everybody's done this already. You know, who do you think you are? There's that voice, which is kind of loud because that tape's been running for a really long time. And then there's all the voices from outside of our head that sort of echo a lot of that conventional wisdom. And then all you have against all that noise is this one tiny little voice inside you reflecting your own creative vision that says, you know, well, maybe, you know, I'd kind of like to make a little movie about that. Or I'd kind of like to draw that. Or I'd kind of like to experiment with that. Or I'd kind of like to solve that problem. And and really learning to, to lean into that to that little voice, because that's all you get. Like, that's your engraved invitation from God. You know, that's, nobody gets more than that. <laughs> that is <laughs> like, like the party invitation, come. right? That's right. the party invitation, yeah. Right, yeah. And, and whether we uh, RSVP or not is up to us. And you've got a great example. And what I love about your example, because uh, as individuals, we are our best lab rats and our best guinea pigs, you are your own client. I'd like to call you, right? 20 years ago, you found yourself depressed, broke, exhausted, and fed up. And what changed? What did you start doing that got you unstuck, that shifted and opened your world to a new paradigm? Yeah, the thing that had me most sort of angry and disappointed was the feeling that I, like I was doing everything right and it still wasn't working. You know, I was following my list. I was doing good work. I was showing up. I was, you know, and yet still nothing was quite moving properly. And I realized I had to stop locating my happiness in the future. I had this voice, this thinking that I think a lot of us do that like, well, if I get this gig, you know, then it'll be okay. Or if I lose this weight, or if I make this amount of money, or if this happens or that happens, then it'll be okay. And sometimes mm-hmm. those things would happen and sometimes they wouldn't, but the, it never made, I didn't feel any better on the inside. So I realized I had to move my focus of concentration into this present moment right now and not this present moment like today, but now, 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 because that's yeah. what we have. Yeah. Well, you know, I, and what you describe is so often the sh- um, shortfall of our personal happiness or well-being, where we hang our happy hat on. And that is the conditional happiness. You know, when I get thin, when I get rich, when I have a child, when I have the perfect, perfect relationship, I will be happy. And oftentimes we even fulfill those goals. And then we find out a, that it's not all that it was cracked up to be, or the fear of losing it once it's been achieved, Mm -hmm. um, sets in. And then we're, you know, we're off to the races on a whole other trajectory. Right. Whereas when you locate your happiness in the present moment and, 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 and return your power and your concentration to the present moment, it doesn't matter what's happening. Yeah. You you know, you're not being pulled off center every time something goes right or every time something goes wrong, but rather you stay calm in the center of your life. And people say self-centered, like it's a bad thing. I was like, yes, myself is in my center. What else would be in my center? What's in your center? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What's in your ripe, juicy middle? You know, is that your happy place? Is that, I mean, that you, you bring up a really good point. Right? Really, so really to be able to put, Yeah, so to put yourself in the center of your life so that no matter what happens, you're at the Trader Joe's parking lot, you get bad news, you get good news, you're still calm, listening, and, you know, happy is a slightly overrated word maybe, but, but joyful, contented, peaceful, like that. Yeah. 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 
Well, you know, it's funny you say that, you know, happiness is a slightly overrated word. I agree with you. I mean, this show is all about happiness. It's called Harvesting Happiness. And we really try and come at this thing with the annoying yellow smiley face and say, no, that's not (laughs) what we're talking about. We're really talking about finding what's going on now and being okay with it and making, stitching together tiny little moments that are full and satisfying and, and rich with experience, because that's the only thing that we can know for sure is what we're able to grasp in this moment. But, you know, our skeptics and naysayers out there will be like, okay, ladies, enough of the kumbaya group hug. How do you do this? I'm stuck. How do you do this? Right. So exactly what you said, it's tiny, tiny little moments. And that's kind of what Start Right Where You Are is. I mean, you can see the book is like, I don't know, 66 super tiny little chapters, like a page or two, many of them. And they have like a little action step. So it's, this was how I got better. This was how I moved from broke and crying on a couch in Sherman Oaks to running my own business and living by the beach (laughs) is with these tiny, tiny little steps and little things just like there's a breathing thing that I love. Should we just do it? Can we just do it right now? Yes, we've got two minutes to the break, yeah. and so that's a perfect way to take us to the pause. Perfect. Go perfect. for it. So, yeah, just let your belly go really poochy soft. We're going to inhale Ooh, for four. Hold. Yes. Poochy, poochy, <laughs> yeah. Then I'm gonna, we're going to inhale for four, hold for seven, exhale for eight. I'll count us through it, and we'll just do this one time. Together. Here we go. Yeah. You ready? So let's yeah. inhale. Two, three, four. Hold. Two, three, four, five. Seven, exhale. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Lovely. Mm, right? One yeah. breath. And all of a sudden I feel I feel different in my body. Like I get a little tingle. I get a little relaxed. I get a little like, oh. And I'm telling yeah. you, the difference between a good day and a bad day is just that, oh. Yeah, we're we're okay. Like right here and now. Yeah. I mean, this is going to be a quantum leap, and I love taking them once in a while. I can I can pretty much guarantee the safety of everybody listening to this podcast in this moment, because yeah. this moment is is absolutely okay. None of us knows what will happen when we dance off to a break in a moment, which we're going to do. But that moment that we shared, we're never getting it back. So we might as well make it great. That's right. That's yeah. correct. Exactly. Yeah. And that, and this is the essence of Sam Bennett's new book, Start Right Where You Are. We're going to go to a break, but before we do, I want to give the contact information for author Sam Bennett, and that is www.startrightwhereyouare.com. On Twitter, that handle is, I'm going to spell it, it's Ogartco, O-R-G-A-R-T-C-O. And on Facebook, the page for Sam Bennett is Sam Bennett Author. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. That's a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, 
with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back to the show. We're continuing my conversation with Sam Bennett, who's helping us to start right where we're at. I am talking with the fabulous Sam Bennett, who is the author of Start Right Where You Are, How Little Changes Can Make a Big Difference for Overwhelmed Procrastinators, Frustrated Overachievers, and Recovering Perfectionists. She's also the author of Get It Done, but if you didn't see yourself in any of those categories... Maybe you need to listen up a little bit more because I think most of us reside in one of these three places, or perhaps there's even a little overlay, right, Sam? <laughs> I think so. I tend to gear shift back and forth between these and sometimes all three at once. Uh, yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but we have the power to feel better. You know, we have the power to to, to make the changes in, in our mindset and in the way that we're thinking and the way we're approaching things to... To, to move past it. It's a beautiful thing. The neuroplasticity of the mind is an amazing thing. <laughs> a, a, amazing. And you and you gave us such a terrific little teeny weeny weeny little exercise before we went to break. And that was the four, seven, eight breathing, which was so effective. And the book is filled with lots of really simple tips, tools, and strategies for moving beyond that place. Another one that you talk about is getting rid of clutter. I love this. Love it. Mm, mm, yes, mental clutter, physical clutter, you name it. And the thing is, right, the Chinese say that health is flow, right? Health is flow. We want the air to flow in and out. We want food. We want love. We want money to flow in and out, right? Anything that is not in a state of flow is stuck, and that stuck energy is depleting. You know, it's the residue of old decisions. All that stuff that you look at and go, oh, <laughs> you know, like, oh, look, there's that yellow coat that I spent $300 on that never really fit, uh, you know, and we don't want to let it go because we feel like it was expensive. But on the other hand, you know, it's not like we're wearing it and then we feel bad every time we look at it. Like, this is a lot of mental energy for a coat to carry, right? <laughs> yes, an so, inanimate yeah. object that we're giving power to. Right. So let it go. Let it fulfill its destiny as there's somebody out there who looks great in yellow who will love that coat. So let it go. And once we free up that stuck energy, it's amazing what happens. And I don't know, you know, what, where the correlation is. I don't know what the magic is that happens, but I can't tell you how many of my clients and students say, I don't know. I cleaned out the garage and my cousin who's owed me $2,000 for the last eight years just paid me. Yeah. Or I don't know. I cleared out my closet and I just met Mr. Ms. Perfect Person, like I just got the love affair that I've always wanted. Like, it's amazing what happens when you let some of that stuck energy go. Yeah, you know, you make a very, very good point, and I have I have experienced what you just described myself in in many ways, because when we hold on to clutter, it really is a metaphor for holding on to 
the junk and parts of ourselves that are are no longer self-serving. And I remember when I went back to graduate school in, um, I think it was 2006, I remember that my professors even said, clean your closets before you start this program. And I thought it was a little Mm -hmm. wacky. I mean, it did make sense, but it was a a master's degree in spiritual psychology. And so I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go with it. I'm going to clean the closets. And really what it made for was a whole bookcase metaphorically um, that was empty and open to possibility that could be filled Mm. with new information. Yeah. Yeah. And it's as simple as, you know, there's, we get really, you know, there's a bunch of different kinds of clutter and I talk about, um, you know, them in the book because it's important. Sometimes the advice around clutter is like, well, just get rid of it. But, you know, when you're, especially when you're sort of psychologically attached to things, that's not so easy. (laughs) <laughs> so, so to get a little deeper, you know, like just do it like, oh, OK, I'll just do that. But to get a little bit deeper into what is that attachment? Like, is it because of something in some old identity? You know, I, I had a friend one time who had a big pile of old film equipment. And I'm like, I think this can go because I think you can make a movie with your iPhone now. Like, <laughs> I think you don't need this equipment. But for her it had to do with her identity as a filmmaker. It was something she hadn't been doing in her life recently. And she felt like if she got rid of the stuff, it would somehow mean she wasn't a filmmaker anymore. And I'm like, no, no, that, that desire is great. That desire is current. That desire is energy pulling you forward. Let's go ahead and put some time on your calendar to, to play around with your filmmaking. And let's let this old stuff go. We don't need the symbol of it, but that, but the message of it, that's important. That, that needs to be considered. I have opened your book to tip number or strategy number 50, which just really is warming my heart here. And it's entitled A Few Remarkably Destructive Communication Habits to Stop Right Now. And I would love mm. to just read them you know, and have you co- comment on them because they're brilliant. Number one, quit complaining right now permanently because it makes your face do ugly things. Plus, it just doesn't work. Yeah. It's just an incredibly ineffective strategy. So yeah. if if you are prone to nagging, just knock it off. Notice that you can't nag anybody into doing anything. You can't even nag yourself into doing the things that you know you should do for you. So let's drop that strategy and find a more effective one, like making a request. That's a much more effective strategy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, plus it has the possibility of being fulfilled if you make the request. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> How about that? Okay. Number, t- <laughs> number two, admit that you're not really frustrated. I mean, these are, these are funny and so true. Mm. Us humans, we do such funny things. Yeah. Yeah. The word fr- I hear frustrated a lot, especially uh, from a lot of people, but especially from women. Like we don't really want to admit that we're mad, Right. So you're like, oh, I'm not mad. I'm not mad. I'm frustrated, but I'm not mad. <laughs> oh, no, honey, you're mad. You're mad. That's okay. And you're right to be mad. Like, go ahead. Get the mad out. Like, let's deal with that actually. Yeah. And frustration is actually the, sort of the marriage of, of, of anger and impotence, the feeling that you, can't, you don't have any power over the situation. So it's important to look at both of those. Am I really angry? And if so, at whom and why? And what do I want to do about that? But also, am I really impotent? Do I really have no control over the situation? Because if you really have no control over the situation, well, then the proper response to the inevitable is relaxation. Like if it's out of your control, then stop trying to control it. 
Go back to four, seven, eight breathing. <laughs> That's where you need right, to go. go. back to four, seven, eight breathing. Exactly, exactly. Work some traffic jams, work all, work all the time. But sometimes there's something that you actually do have control over. And maybe you could exert some control over those things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Control what you can, which is usually ourselves. Hello, that is the cliff note, right? That's it. That's it. What's going on inside of your own mind and that which is right in front of your hands and you can touch. That's pretty much what, that's your sphere of influence. Number three, don't apologize when you haven't done anything to be sorry for. Okay, how many times a day do we all do this? I'm sorry that we bumped into somebody. I'm sorry that we cut somebody off or whatever. Talk about this. This, right. is, this is a big and time a time sucker, right? It, well, it's it's more of like almost a positioning problem, you know, because um, I don't mind, you know, saying sorry when you bump into somebody or somebody bumps into you. I mean, sorry as a way to sort of, you know, grease the social wheels of interaction so that people feel more comfortable. I think that's fine. What I'm concerned about is is when we're apologizing, when we haven't done anything wrong, when there's nothing to apologize for. So all of a sudden you're lowering your own status. You're, you're squashing your own energy for no reason. I was just out with some friends last night and I have a friend who's, you know, she's shy and she's in a big sort of personal growth spurt. And she's like, well, you know, I'm sorry to say this, but I just really feel like, you know, like I want to, you know, take this time for myself. I'm sorry. I, I just want, I'm like, don't be sorry. You can take time for yourself. You're a grown woman. That's fine. Do that. You know, but for her to frame it as though it's something for her to apologize for is, is, is a misstep because no, no, claim it, claim it as yours. Yeah. Own it. So that, you and know, then when you apologize, yeah, own it. And then when you apologize, it really means something. Yes. And that was the final part of this, this piece here. And if you really are sorry, say it and mean it. And I think that that really um, speaks to the heart of what you just shared, you know, save it for something where it really matters. Talk a little bit about goals you know, we're, we're embarking on a new year and you offer a very unique perspective on goal setting. We don't have a lot of time left, but I really want to dial in here on the goals. Yeah. So I think the the thing to acknowledge is, like you said, you know, sometimes our goals often show up as little teeny tiny, you know, ideas or requests or intuitions. And to allow yourself to, first of all, have the sparkly breadcrumb stage, the sparkly breadcrumbs, you know, where you're just sort of, I kind of just take a couple of steps in this direction, a couple of steps in that direction and see how it feels, see how it goes. Cause sometimes we can take a couple of steps and you know, it's not just not work. It's not it's a lot of knees and elbows. It's a lot of miscommunication. You don't feel good doing it. Like, okay, that's not the right time for that right now. Maybe not never, but not right now. Other times. And I know you all have had this experience where you take a couple of steps towards something and whoosh, like the universe just comes rushing at you in amazing ways but you have to take those little steps and then to continue on with like a minimum daily requirement, right? <laughs> you know, minimum daily requirement. What's the easiest, smallest, tiniest step you could possibly take and then do that every day. Do yeah. that every day. It's amazing what can happen when you put a little steady progress behind something and, and when you're and in it instead of just thinking about it. Yeah. And when you, the minimum daily requirement, it's almost like a nutritional supplement, you know, like if you That's want right. to feel stronger, better, more healthy, you know, we look at nutrition and we look at all the vitamins that we spend crazy amounts of money on that are really invisible to our success. We think, we think they are going to help us feel better. And there's it's probably truth in, in it. And there's also placebo effect in it, but we don't necessarily do it with our emotional self-care and our goal setting and our strategizing for a better life. And I think what you suggest is really powerful because that it's brain food. 
Well, exactly. And we have that voice that says like, oh, I couldn't do that. It's selfish. It's selfish for me to take time for my own creative product projects. It's selfish for me to do my prayer and meditation practice or whatever. But here's the thing. That's, that's backwards. Because what's really selfish is you showing up exhausted, stressed out, underfed, and with no sense of humor. Because the rest <laughs> of us have to deal with you like that. That's selfish. When you show up, lit up, fed, rested, meditated, walked, prayed, padded, cuddled, creatively satisfied, like we love that version of you. That's the opposite of selfish. You know, yeah. if you're present, you can hear thing, people when they're talking to you. You don't take things so personally. You're not so reactive. You're more self-nourishing. You have more to offer. Like, do that. Do that. Yes, That's the you- opposite of selfish. And can you imagine if everybody showed up like that? Amazing. We- We'd have a, such a happy world. My, happy we're, out of, we're, we're out of time. My guest has been Sam Bennett, author of Start Right Where You Are, How Little Changes Can Make a Big Difference for Overwhelmed Procrastinators, Frustrated Overachievers, and Recovering Perfectionists. To learn more, please visit www.startrightwhereyouare.com. On Twitter, the handle is Ogartco, and that's O-R-G-A-R-T-C-O. And on Facebook, the page is Sam Bennett author. Thanks for joining me, Sam. You are a delight. And I'm right there with you, sister. I get it. Your book is going on my bedside table. Oh, thank you so much, Lisa. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen and my amazing guest today, Mike Long and Sam Bennett, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.